This should have been expected, and we have every reason to believe that Daniel did expect it because he does not despair completely in the hands of the Babylonians. However, this was still a time of great persecution for a very young man. The purpose of Daniel here is to withstand the pressures to conform to the Babylonians while also seeking the welfare, as Jeremiah says, of the city in which he finds himself. Now that requires wisdom, doesn't it? How do you neither be defiant on the one hand, nor conforming on the other? Because Daniel's neither. He's neither defiant, nor is he conforming. Defiant youths would be dead by now. They'd just been killed. I mean, they couldn't be defiant in the entire deportation. Persecution does that. It kind of weeds out those that are seeking to just simply not take it. And I don't know, perhaps they were right not to take it. I, I couldn't speak to that, but they're dead by now. Daniel's lot as a wise man is not to simply be defiant. We see those cues in the text. The temptation to not seek the welfare of the land that they were deported now to gives way to a different temptation for those that are surviving. Daniel has understood and nuanced the reality that he is going to be in exile in a foreign land, and frankly, as we've already seen for quite some time. But what Daniel now has to do is not simply overcome being a martyr for the sake of being a martyr's sake, but now he has to overcome the temptation to simply conform to the culture because that would have been the road more traveled by. And a lot of people that were exiled, that were deported, a lot of youths did this. In fact, we have every reason to believe that these four may have had no more. They may have stood alone in their convictions and where they drew the line. And so we need to understand here as we look at this, as we look at this first and then lean into the second temptation, that it's not just what Daniel did that is operative, but it's what underlied it, why he did it. So let us conclude our first point, this temptation of persecution, this temptation in suffering, that we might be defiant and bitter because of what's happened to us. And let's assume that God provided the grace out from under that. He gave them a way to see that he could be a part of this culture without being of this culture. And now let's look to the second temptation, and that is to somehow get Daniel and people like Daniel to give up their convictions, to give up their distinctiveness, and to be a part of the culture. So secondly, in verses 8 through 15, what we find is that God gives resolution to Daniel in the face of secularism, or if you like it better, seduction, if you don't like the word secularism. It's hard to know why the line was where it was drawn. Some say, as I said, that it was food sacrificed to idols, but veggie burgers would have been there also, or vegetables rather, and they probably would have been sacrificed to idols too. I think it's, it's wise to say this is a wisdom issue. Morality exists, as I've quoted before, like Chesterton said, in where to draw the line. It's like art. Where do I draw the line? Daniel decides to draw the line here, and apparently so do three of his companions. They draw the line right here. So we don't necessarily know why, but we do know what they did. They said, we will not have this table fellowship with you the way that you're having it. We do not want to eat that. But actually, I just misspoke. They didn't say that at all. They resolved not to do it, but they didn't say they wouldn't do it. Look at the wisdom in verses 8 and 9. I mean, Daniel has got a I'm not going to take it mentality when Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. He will not do it. But he doesn't say it 
just to make himself a martyr, although I'm sure that was always in the back of his mind, he could die for his faith. He said he shrewdly, he wisely presents his conviction as a well-thought-out question. He makes a request. Look at verse 9. Daniel, or I'm sorry, verse 8b. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. He said to his boss, please let me not do this. Even though it seems that he's already decided he's willing to die for this. He's resolute. He has resolution. He has the Lord's holiness in view. In his own pursuit of that holiness, even in this exile, as a young man, in training to be a Babylonian, he's actually maintaining his roots. And he refuses, he resolves, he will not go down this path any further. But he presents it as a question to the chief of the eunuchs. Would you please? It's a request. It's not a command. And you talk about really a lot of wisdom, I think, here. There's a lot of wisdom for us today in how we approach employers, people of influence, governing authorities, sometimes even, for heaven's sakes, parents that do not have the heart of our Savior. Do we approach them with rank defiance? Or do we approach those that God has allowed to be in positions of authority over us with requests? Well-thought requests, careful requests. And even if our resolution underneath is, I will go no further, do we have to present it in the most direct possible terms? God grants favor to wise Daniel, not only in the request, but also in the response. It says, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of his boss. He has favor with them. That is a huge thing. If you have favor with anyone, you need to understand that it's because God gave it to you. You are not clever enough to get favor when you need it. If you have favor with people, it's because God gave you the ability, the opportunity, and frankly, the turn of the mind of the individual that you needed favor from when you most needed it. We need to lose pride in this. The smog of secularism is all around you. It's the air that we breathe today. To be fair, Babylon cannot be strictly thought of as secular. Babylon had religion. It had gods. Most satanic systems do, frankly. If you define secularism, looking again at dictionary.com, where else would you look? They define secularism as a system of political or social philosophy that rejects all forms of religious faith and worship. A system of political or social philosophy that rejects all forms of religious faith and worship. So secularism is fine with pluralism. There's all kinds of beliefs out there. I don't really care. It's not fine with dogmatic religion. I have a way that I believe is the way and there is not another way. So pluralism is everyone has their own way. And religion is my way is actually right. And that kind of, of conviction, of resolution about religion is where it bumps up against statism. It bumps up against secularism. Now, for what it's worth, America has been marked by the presence of pluralism and religion at the same time. This was a sociological uh, awareness marker of Alexis de Tocqueville in the 19th century. It's something that's been common to our country, is that where we live, there is pluralism allowed and religion is allowed. So you might see churches on every street corner, and you might at the same time see people all across the country in enclaves of people and societies of people within the society that have different religious persuasions or perhaps very little religion at all. But the, the, the actual strength, it seems, in this particular country 
as best as I understand it, has been overcoming injustices by returning to superior ideals that are rooted in the Jewish Christian ethic, even if you don't have to produce and profess a Jewish Christian faith. And I think that those ethics are reflected in the Constitution. So we find seed text in our Constitution here to repent of things like slavery, ethnic war camps like the Japanese, and reservations like what we did to the Native Americans. Americans are not superior. That is definitely sinful. That's, that's favoritism, and it's, it's, frankly, it's racism. Americans are a melting pot of all different kinds of ethnicities, which in that way probably resembles the kingdom, because in the kingdom we're going to have all different nationalities, every tribe and tongue. If I said Americans are not superior and that offended you, let me put it differently. I do believe that the American way of life has been favored because of its rootedness in man as created in the image of God. Therefore, we can always rely on every single life being precious in God's sight. The weaving of the allowance for you to not have a religion of the state and in God we trust and one nation under God, has been, it's been such a part of our experience as Americans that we almost can't even identify it without taking a step back to look at it. Religion may not be defined in the public square here, but shared values are defined in the public square. Law always carries a connotation of morality. That's what law is. It's propagating some morality. There is no moralless law. Law carries morals. Babylon had religion, but it looks in form more like secularism. Believe privately what you want, Daniel, but don't bring any distinctives to the table where Marduk is our God. When you come to the Babylonian table, you can privately believe what you want, but go ahead and eat and drink what we've got for you and have table fellowship with us. Most Hebrews that didn't die in protest just succumbed to the liberal tendency to conform. They just slid their allegiances aside. But Daniel was neither in this sense a defiant one, nor was he willing to progress into Babylonian society. He lived in this tension where he, did, he, was no, he wasn't in protest for the reality in which he lived, but he also wasn't willing to defile himself utterly in this secular seduction. So Daniel stayed religious. I don't, in the second point, I, I thought to myself, kind of, what, what do we do with this exactly? Like, how do you take the wisdom of Daniel and apply it to your life? I don't really think I should answer that, because I think wisdom requires wisdom to apply. But I will pose a question for you, maybe a line of thought for you within a question. Is the secular smog so thick in your existence that you don't even realize you're in the middle of it? I mean, most of us don't. To help you see spiritually again, let me ask you this. Where would you draw the line and say, I'm not willing to go there? Before it happens even, where would that line, where could you hypothesize the line might be based on your pursuit of holiness and the fact that your faith can't simply stay private? It has an effect on how you live your life. Where is it? 
I don't mean just keep moving the line. I mean just think to yourself with wisdom. And I also don't mean grandstanding. Grandstanding is not required for standing. I just mean, where is it? Is it some version of idolatry that you simply you can't quite get through? I won't go there. Is it, is it the call to wink, wink, and nod, nod with some kind of a secular sexual immorality that you're just not going to discuss with? I've referenced, or I've, I've rather, I've, I've alluded to or, or, or kind of loosely referenced 1 Corinthians 10, verses 6 to 17 a few times now. And I tell you, I just think you should write that down and read it this afternoon because it lists these sort of temptations that we have and the need to, to have a line somewhere that we won't go past with regard to greed, with regard to sexual immorality, with regard to rank idolatry. It talks about these things. I think these thought processes are in view in the narrative of Daniel. In the narrative of Daniel, he had to decide before it happened where he would draw the line, or at least on what principles he would make the line. And I ask you today, not only where would you draw the line, but where have you said no more in the past? Maybe that gives you some indication. Like, where in the past have you said no more? And I heard a preacher talking about this, his name's Christopher Ash. He had a nice little 20-minute teaching on this, and this was where he drilled down deep on this aspect. I think he made a very salient point. He said, I'm not so much interested that you draw the line in the same place that I draw the line. I'm interested in that your conscience, as compelled by your understanding of the Word of God, convicts you to be resolved somewhere. That's what I'm concerned with. And I think, that's what, I think that's what we'll preach here. Where do you draw the line? If you keep moving the goalpost, if you keep moving the line, you're not drawing the line. You're trying to appease your guilty conscience. Your conscience is to be informed and obeyed. It's not to be beat around like, a, like some kind of a whipped puppy. Now, this second aspect here has to do with God giving us resolution to draw the line in the midst of secularism, in the midst of a seductive culture. And my goodness, do we not live in one now? I mean, we live in a seductive culture now. But as I've already said, God is capable of sustaining you in the midst of such seduction. Remember that that Daniel was not brutish or bullish, he made a request to his supervisor. Realize here that he didn't have to wear his resolutions in lettering on a t-shirt in order to actually have resolve. The call in Ephesians chapter 6 within the armor of God being put on the believer, is to stand firm. Again and again it says, stand firm, stand firm, stand firm. The end of our text in Daniel says, he stood before the king. What it means to stand firm is not always to stand out. It's not always to bicker. Sometimes it's the shrewdness to say quietly, can you help me live my convictions without making a scene and without you losing your head with that wicked king Nebuchadnezzar? Can we make a deal? This is wisdom. You really want to read something in the New Testament will blow your mind. Read the par- parable of the shrewd steward, the wicked steward in Luke 16, 1-13. It's a very interesting parable where it seems like neither the boss nor the steward are very moral. But when you read that, what it says is, is that 
Wisdom says down the text, wisdom is proved right by her actions or by her children. Wisdom is proved right by what comes out of it. But it also says, he who is faithful over little things becomes ruler over much or more. So there's this principle of this little bitty thing mattering that you just can't always look to the bigger points of accomplishment. You have to look to this little, what's right in front of you. How do I be faithful with this, with that line, with that task, with that thing, with that flow chart, with that command? But in that text, it does have a sense in which stewardship matters, where we're supposed to be shrewd. We're supposed to be acting with wisdom. And, and honestly, some of us, and this is the reason I've thought so much about preaching a wisdom text like, or rather like Proverbs. I've preached so much Revelation. I just say it now, don't I? We just finished Revelation. Uh, you know, there was a cake for that at the Thanksgiving meal, just for what it's worth. We finished Revelation. I don't know if I was supposed to be glad for that or take that as an insult. I'm not sure. But, I mean, I've come here to Daniel now as a, another book that has visions in it and apocalypse-type literature in it, as well as just this narrative in the first six chapters of Daniel. But I've thought seriously about preaching through Proverbs. A brother asked me about two weeks ago, what are you going to preach through next? And I said, I'm not really sure. I mean, I kind of have this affection for the Gospel of John because John wrote Revelation, and I, I kind of have a sense in which the gospel narrative is important for our church right now, and, and I've got an opportunity to study with a brother and, and, and look at Exodus, and that might be interesting, at least part of it, for where we haven't been in the church in the past. And then I also thought, you know, we really need wisdom. And so one of the things vying at me after Daniel is, are we a wise people? Are we shrewd dealers? You say, well, I, don't, I just want to be innocent. I don't want to be shrewd. Well, read the Bible again on balance and tell me you're not supposed to have wisdom for the Christian life. I mean, if you read Matthew chapter 10, it's either verse 16 or 17, it says that we are to be, or at least those that were going out from Jesus, were to have been innocent as doves, but also shrewd as serpents. Now, if, if you don't need the medicine that I'm giving you right now, ignore it. If you're shrewd, but you lack innocence, you need to get some morality in your life, and you need to figure out how to approach people and some conscientiousness and all the, all the above. But if you're innocent as a dove... But your shrewdness factor is in the guttural. You probably need to read Proverbs. You probably need to read Daniel chapter 1. You probably need to think about it carefully because you may lack the shrewdness that Jesus personifies in the Bible commands. We are to operate shrewdly in a pagan culture, in the midst of secularism. We're not just to step on every landmine. Like, oh, I'm innocent. The Proverbs says you see that and you step around that thing and you go forward. There are some in my midst that need to grow in wisdom. Me too. We all need to grow in wisdom. Some of you particularly need to consider this text in that way. And begin asking questions to, to the, the elders in the church, amongst one another, to your spouse if you're married, to a trusted Christian confidant. How can I grow in wisdom? Where, am I not, where have you seen me not operate shrewdly? How can I get it right next time? This is important for us. If we're going to grow in spiritual maturity. And that is our aim, isn't it? That we might present everyone maturing Christ. Growing in spiritual maturity like Colossians 1.28 says. Our second point is finally behind us. I'm sure you'll rejoice. We get to our third point. God gives humility in the face of success. Now, here's, here's what happens in this third and final point. Let's kind of consider how we get into this. So we've had suffering overcome. We've now had secularism not seduced into that secularism. God's, God is with him in the suffering. God is, God is for him in the seduction. And, and they, they don't go in and they don't do the things that the Babylonians are doing necessarily. But now we, we get into, after this 10-day test that proved well, we get into some actual success. 
And the success can be the tripwire. You know, when I read in Revelation, I read about the way that Satan and the satanic kingdom tries to come at God's people both through seduction and persecution. You see that over and over. If you read Revelation on balance, sometimes it's trying to seduce God's people, sometimes it's trying to persecute God's people, and it's just kind of going back and forth. This one kind of adds a bit of a third element that might could, could, could float in the other two, but I think it's kind of distinct, and that is success. Success provides its own unusual opportunities. Success provides its own numbing effect to spirituality. Success can put us in a place of pride, particularly if we don't see how and think through how we're going to behave, how we're going to live, and really who we're living for before we get to the successful moment. Now, this is not, Daniel 1 is not an anti-educational chapter. If you want to look in the Bible for a place by which you can put down tent pegs that we should just sort of sit around and, and just not do anything with our Christian lives and not learn literature and language and not study and we should never go to university. I mean, these guys come away with what one pastor called an MBA. He calls it a Master's in Babylonian Administration. I mean, they come away with the literature and the language of the Babylonians, and yet they will not worship Marduk. They will not go down and worship with the pagan, with the pagan gods, with the Babylonians, with the other melding pot of peoples, and even with the other Hebrew teenagers that had fallen victim to the seduction. And so now they're successful. God has favored them. He's given them into exile. He's given them favor with the overseer. And now he's going to give them favor with the top of the flow chart in the known land, King Nebuchadnezzar. So look at verse 17. These veggie-eating, non-conforming, shrewd four young men setting at, standing out as an example. Verse 17 says, As for these four youths, God gave. What did he give them? He gave them an education. He gave them skill. He gave them wisdom. It says, Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams, which would have been requisite to get along in that society. This was, this was not, now I talked about the similarities with secularism. This was not a society that disbelieved in the divine. This was actually a society that very much believed in spirituality. It just did not affirm the one true God. And so it says here that Daniel has what he needs and his friends have what they need to get along in the society, to be successful. Verse 18 says, At the end of the time, the king had commanded that they should be brought in, and the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, before the king. So, I mean, this is not just a matter of whether or not he gets through his doctoral defense to get a PhD or some advanced degree, some master's degree. This is not even someone standing up to try to, to give their paper for their bachelor's degree or get out of high school with their last paper, or any of that kind of stuff. This is not just a degree that's at stake. To fail this defense verbally, to not be able to synthesize into the rhetorical what they've learned with the grammar and the dialectic is possibly to die. I mean, a wrong word here can be your head. The wisdom that these four young men were given by God, the skill, it, it is a grace. And we need grace to know how to speak when we come in rooms with people of, of power. In fact, there's this verse in Proverbs. I can find it. I'll read it to you. I wrote it down. It's Proverbs twenty two twenty nine. It says, do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He won't stand before obscure men. So if, if you seek to be, uh, by the way, I would say, say a word. I meant to say this a little bit ago. I'll just say it now to you young people. Do not let anybody shame you for seeking to be smart. 
That shame is jealousy. Don't let anybody shame you for seeking to be smart. If you're a young person, you seek to be smart. Seek to be well-read. Seek to learn the grammar of literature, the grammar of great books. Seek to learn the grammar of math and science. Seek to learn a skill that can get you by in the world. Now, I'm not saying that we should idolize intelligence. That's not the point of this. I'm simply saying you have strong biblical backing for understanding education as part, the pursuit of education as part of the Christian worldview. This text is one of the texts that tells us about it. Daniel was not to draw the line and say, I won't study. In fact, he was the best student. He was to draw the line and say, I won't conform to your pagan practices. I will not have absolute table fellowship with you. What we see here is very educated from the University of Babylon, apparently, very educated believers, folks that could get along in the world but didn't confi- did not violate their resolutions. Jonathan Edwards wrote a bunch of resolutions as an early Christian, 18th century preacher, and you should look them up. Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. It kind of puts me in the mind of Daniel with these resolutions he must have had. One of them makes its way into the first chapter of Daniel, but I'm sure he had more than one. He decided in advance where the line was, and he made those resolutions. But now, within all of that, he has success. He is a successful man, and that carries its own temptations. He stood before kings. And, and here's, here's, what it, here's what it says that he, he did in verse, uh, verse 19. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better. And a quick word about that. That's a Hebrew idiom for having ten hands. It's that they could do the, effect, the work of five men. Like, two, like five sets of hands. In other words, I'd rather have that one than five of those other ones. And it apparently says, if you read on here, that it's not just that they could do the work of, of five of their peers, but they were that much better than their, their elders. They were that much better than the, the magicians and enchanters that were already operating in the kingdom, in the empire. And so what these four have, God has granted them tremendous success and immediate favor with the rule by fiat king of the Babylonian empire, Nebuchadnezzar. At the highest level of Babylon in history, you have Daniel being highly favored by the king. Now, if that couldn't go to somebody's head, I don't know what could, what wouldn't. I just ask you now, if God, if God grants you the success, if you've gotten over the little tripwire that I just shouldn't try to study, by the way, it's never too late to put one foot in front of the other and learn something. Just read something this week. Try to grow. Being a disciple is being a learner. It's part of what being a disciple is. what Mathetes means. To be a disciple is to be a learner. We're Christians. We're learning. We're learning orally. We're learning if we can read through reading, through listening. There's audible books. There's all this kind of stuff. We're learners. If you've gotten over that tripwire and you've accomplished something or you're going to accomplish something, if you're going to accomplish a skill, I'm going to ask you this. What are, you, are you prepared now for how you're going to handle success? We have a, a man in this church that has a saying. He says, it takes a steady hand to hold a full cup. You ever heard that saying before? It takes a steady hand to hold a full cup. So if you've got a full cup, that cup's full of liquid, and, and if, if you don't have a steady hand, you can't keep it from spilling out the sides. That's what he means by that. It takes a steady hand to hold a cup full of success. It takes a steady hand. I just want to ask you, if God, if God grants you income, if he grants you opportunity, if he grants you access, what, what does that mean to you? How will you handle that? Some of us thank God we don't get it because we wouldn't know what to do with it if we had it. 
But if you get it, if that's the way you're termed, what are you going to do with it? What does it look like? Because if you don't decide before you get there, it's likely that it becomes a temptation for you to trust in yourself and to seek for yourself instead of seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and allowing all these things to take place. And they'll, they'll brag on you. The kings will brag on you, and they'll also then backdoor you to try to get you to move the goalpost, try to change your resolutions, to try to live in a way you would have never lived before you had the success. They stood before the king. They stood before the king. I want you to recall that Jesus, when he was being tempted, was taken to a high view by Satan. And you remember, you might recall this, Matthew 4 and Luke 4 records it. Satan said to Jesus, if you'll just do this my way, I'll give you all that and you won't have to go to the cross. If you'll just do it the way I want you to, worship me this way, you don't have to go to the cross. Let's make this deal. I'll give you all those kingdoms. And Jesus, of course, refuted him with a verse from Daniel. He knew his Bible. Jesus was attended to by angels. And it says that Satan left Jesus and never, ever came after him again. No, that's not what it says. It says in that passage in Luke 4.13 that Satan left and would come again at an opportune time. They'd come to tempt again. Temptations are not going to stop coming. But neither does God's grace in Christ. He gives you grace for the moment. He gives you grace for the day. Daniel had staying power. King Cyrus was 70 years later. Daniel stayed. Daniel's steadiness led and paved the way for Ezra's reforms and Nehemiah's return to rebuild the temple. Daniel always prayed facing Jerusalem. He never lost heart of home. He never lost heart of his king. It wasn't that God was just with Daniel in exile and God was just for Daniel in temptation, but God was over Daniel in opportunity. You need to remember that in your, success, in your successes, lest you fall. God is always over the most potent and powerful earthly ruler or employer or governing official or friend or influencer. God is always a higher authority. I think Daniel never forgot it. But Daniel's not our example. Well, I mean, I should say he's our example, but he's not our king. He's only an example. Daniel was a fallen man like us. It just doesn't record a lot of his mistakes in Daniel. It's not the thrust of the book. Daniel's not Jesus. Only Jesus knew no sin. And so as fellow sinners, how will we fail forward? How will we return again with the help of God to the grace that is needed to overcome temptation? Well, I think the table fellowship we have here matters. I think, I think that when we have take the Lord's Supper together, when we spend time together, when we pray together, I think with one another we find strength and shrewdness and innocence to overcome the temptations of the evil one that come in seasons, in opportune times. The schemes of the devil are overcome by putting on the armor of God, but it is something that we experience together, and God gives us grace together. Daniel stood alone, but he didn't stay alone. He had a couple of friends, and those friends made a lot of difference. King Jesus is the one that we most need to remember that we will stand before, and when we stand before King Jesus, we will stand because of our faith in him. 
He will advocate for us. I say that to every believer in my hearing. But you must be a believer. So if you are yet an unbeliever, I want you to understand that when you stand before that highest king on the day of judgment, he will say, depart from me, I never knew you, unless you receive his free gift of salvation during this life. This is the greatest gift of all, the gift of salvation. The righteousness and wisdom of the examples of the Old Testament only serve to prefigure the ultimate righteousness and wisdom of Christ. You need your guilt removed, and you need to be made positively perfect in Christ. And you get both of those from Jesus, from His work on the cross and from His perfection in His life. Sinclair Ferguson said this, and I'll read from him and then I'll close. He said, Jesus himself is the great illustration of overcoming testing and temptation. As he continued to withstand pressures, his human character was developed so that he might be the kind of Savior that we each need. In the same way, God invests in our lives in order to make us strong and useful. No piece of equipment is fit for use unless it has been tested. The same is true of the citizens of the kingdom of God. There is a further sense in which the stand that Daniel and his companions took seems to have borne fruit. Centuries after their witness among the wise men of Babylon, we are told of certain wise men from the east who came seeking the one who had been born as king of the Jews. You read about it in Matthew chapter 2. We read about it during Advent. They did not have crystal clear ideas about Jesus, but they had seen his star and had come to worship him. How did they know anything about the promised Messiah? We don't know for certain, but if we possessed a detailed knowledge of history, could we perhaps trace their search back to Daniel and the faithful witness he bore in the court of Nebuchadnezzar? It is certainly not impossible. Unborn generations would feel the impact of his faithful testimony. The history of the Christian church abounds with illustrations and examples of men and women whose lives have had an effect on the advance of the kingdom of God because of their faithfulness to the Lord in seemingly small and insignificant moments. And your witness can have a lasting impact on the lives of others. What you do here matters. Who you are matters most. He concludes, Faithfulness, not reputation or situation, is what counts in God's kingdom. God is with you, He's for you, and He's over you in all that you face. Let's bow our heads together.